Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. It became sanitized. These are big corporations who have people sitting in, in rooms whose job it is is to cover their own asses and make sure that nobody upsets the apple cart. And unfortunately now in spoken word radio, where you can't script three, four, five-hour shows, you know, you're going to say something silly every once in a while, as long as you know where the line is. And I've known where the line is. I mean, imagine how many words you and I have spoken over the public airwaves for decade after decade, and every once in a while you say something stupid. Getting ready for a great holiday weekend. Hard to believe we're moving into June already. Really excited about the podcast today as I speak with a former colleague, a guy that I worked with back in the 90s. We've got our Crowd Ultra Q&A and my rant as well. Today's podcast is brought to you by New Works Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for over 20 years. And whether it's leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing, New Works Plumbing, is a full-service plumbing solution. And really, no matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. And their expert technicians are available 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. My guest today has had an amazing career talking sports on some of the biggest media platforms in America. Quite simply, uh, I think the guy is a true icon in our industry. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Tony Bruno. Tony, how are you? I'm good, Graham. Well, thank you for the kind words. I'm not an acon, of course. He's the rapper, and I think he's having some problems lately. But enough about him. Let's get it back to the topic at hand. Hey, uh, growing up in Philadelphia, how old were you about when you thought maybe broadcasting would be something you would like to do? You know, that's that's a great question because not a lot of people ask me that now that I'm, you know, almost 69 years old and have been doing it for over 50 years of my life. I, there's no reason why. I used to just sit around at night. My dad died when I was 10, so I was sitting at home at late night. I'd sit down and turn the AM radio on, the transistor radio, because nobody listened to FM back then. And I would hear staticky broadcasts coming from all over the country. You know, living in Philly, I could get Wawa in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and all of these signals at night on these super stations. And it wasn't just sports. I would hear sports broadcasts. I'd hear talk radio. I'd hear music radio. And so I was always fascinated with the medium, even though I had nobody in my family, no history of knowing anyone in the radio, TV industry. I just was fascinated by it. And I used to call DJs at night on the music stations and they were real nice to me. I was a 13, 14 year old kid and they were nice enough to talk to me. 
usually they talk to women who were calling up for a request and they could hit on them. But here they took time to talk to a young kid who would call up and express interest in the business. So I had a couple of local DJs who were really good to me and they, they talked me through it. They told me what I needed to do to stay focused and go to school and learn diction and all the other important things, which we don't need to do anymore. Uh, and I did that. And, and luckily, at, by the age of 18, I was already getting job offers to make $50 a week doing radio. I didn't care what I did. I wasn't looking for a news job or a sports job. I just wanted to be on the air. So I got a job working overnight, ripping and reading news on a local station up in the Philadelphia suburbs. And I went to Temple during the day at night, and then I go to work overnight. And so I was trying to put everything together. And the bottom line is I just stuck with it. You know, I, I paid my dues. It took me seven years of working overnight radio mm. before I even got a sniff of being on in the daytime. So times have changed, and that's how you pay the dues back then. And nowadays, you know, when, you, when people say, you know, how do I get to do this? I don't think you have to do the overnight shift and work seven years anymore. If you're talented, the people think and believe in you. I think they could. I think you can make a move quickly and move up the food chain. So that's what I give the advice to young people. You don't have to work seven. By the way, if you're working seven years overnight and making fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year, you probably really don't want to do radio or TV as your career. It's a great point. Was there one person or one situation when you look back at your career where you say, "Man, that paves my path to all the network shows you did"? Or was was? Could you look back at one scene or one person? Wow, you know, I, I think back to it. I mean, I had a lot of people help me. You know, obviously, I didn't do it on my own, but I had people who believed in me. You know, I, I did audition tapes. I, I remember going into the first studio and reading an Alpo commercial with my Philadelphia accent, and it was embarrassing. And in fact, the guy who ran the broadcasting school who who suggested that I go there, he taped that the broadcasting school me reading an Alpo commercial, sounding like some moron off the street. And then they got the first tape of me doing a newscast at WFIL, one of the old AM great radio stations back in the 60s and 70s, and me doing a newscast with a reverb. And it, the difference was so remarkably overwhelming that, that that opened a lot of eyes, ears, noses, and throats. And so that's when people said, wow, this is a kid off the streets of South Philly, no radio background. He worked hard. He got there. And then I started getting job offers. And again, low-paid jobs got my foot in the door, and then I worked my way up as a news reporter. And at age 21, I actually won a Best Radio News Reporting Award in the city of Philadelphia as a guy who had only been in the business one year. So wow. I think I, I, I made a mark right away. People saw I was motivated, dedicated, do whatever it took to move up, and I eventually moved up the food chain, and, and the rest is history. But it has to be at the beginning. If nobody believes in you and nobody thinks that you have anything to offer, or, you know, I didn't have a big, booming, beautiful radio voice, and I just... I just did what I had to do, which was back in the day, all the classic broadcasters, you know, had good diction. You know, they, they didn't sound like they were from someplace. They didn't have an accent. That's what I was told. Sound like you're from the Midwest. You know, you don't want sure. anybody to know where you're from. And you listen to the broadcasters, you know, they were all guys with big, booming voices. And luckily, you know, we've moved on, and now it doesn't really matter what you sound like. It's what you can say and whether people buy your content or your ability to express opinions or whatever it is that you're doing in our industry. You know, somebody's got to believe in you, and that's what happened to you with your great you know, basketball play-by-play and all the stuff you've done in your career. You have to find people who believe in you, and, and I think that's still the key today with a lot of people out there trying to figure out what they want to do, especially young kids in college. You know, what do I want to do? Do I get in the radio TV business? And that's a tough decision right now when you consider what you have to go through to, to make no money in the beginning and whether you can survive 
you know, I got married when I was 21. So I was married and I was making $15,000 a year. But my wife at the time, you know, believed in me and she said, you know what, this is what you have to do. And we did it. And then I moved on and started making six figures and life was good. The two most nervous times in my career, the first one was when I was doing the Raiders on TV during the preseason and Bruce Allen took me to the middle of the practice field in Napa to meet Al Davis. The second most nervous was when I got a call in 1998 during the NBA lockout and they asked me to come in and uh, co-host game night on ESPN radio. And, and who do I do my first show with Mr. ESPN radio, Tony Bruno on a Saturday night on game night from seven to one in the morning. And I swear to God, Tony, I flew all night, the red eye. I got a couple of hours of sleep. I had never been to the, Bristol headquarters, and I remember walking in there, and I was I was petrified to do a show with Tony Bruno. How about that, man? You those were great that, days. I used to I, I, mean, well, I used I to listen that. to you all you know, the I was time. Fortunate again, as I moved up the food chain, as I mentioned, I was doing local sports reporting in Philly back in the seventies, doing the Flyer Stanley Cups, and, yeah. and then Charlie Steiner, who was in New York working at the RKO Radio Network way before ESPN. This is now in the eighties. We're talking. I was doing local radio, and I was going to games, and I was a stringer. And I'd have, like, CBS, Jim Kelly on CBS Radio would call me and say, hey, can you do some reports during the games? So that's how I got the uh, – that's how I got my foot in the door. Not that I was looking for it, but, you know, when you're a local reporter in a city like Philly, and, you know, when the Flyers were winning Stanley Cups and the Sixers were good and the Phillies were good, I had started getting phone calls from New York, you know, CBS Radio and then RKO Radio back in the day at 1440 Broadway, and – these people were like, wow, you know, you sound pretty good. Would you be able to do some stuff for us? So I started doing reports for RKO, for CBS. And then Keith Olbermann and I met, and we were both working at RKO Radio in New York. This is 1980 now. Keith was just out of Cornell, young guy, brilliant, sharp kid, and we're working. He's doing sports updates at 15 past the hour. I'm doing sports updates at 45 past the hour. So Charlie Steiner, Keith Olbermann, me, a bunch of you know, a bunch of other people who went on to great stuff in radio, all working together just on the weekend, just doing updates all over the nation. And that's when people started hearing me nationally, just even doing updates. And that's when Charlie Steiner, who then went to ESPN after that, recommended me to the bosses at ESPN Radio when ESPN was deciding to put together a network. So it's about knowing somebody, somebody believing you. So Charlie Steiner, very instrumental in me going to Bristol on weekends while I was still working in Philly doing morning show on WIP, one of the, uh, one of the original all sports radio stations. So I was working the seven day a week thing and I was very blessed to be on ESPN radio because to this day, you know, there's a generation of people who are now adults, thirties and forties who said, you know, I used to listen to that on weekends growing up. That was it because we were the only really big national show that people could hear all over the country, Correct. giving the live updates before we had, internet before we had only this all this other stuff we were the people that went live post game and have a phone handed to the star of the game and that was a lot of fun so i was fortunate to be a part of that era with espn and that fox hired me in 2000 to go out to la and start that sports radio network so again knowing a lot of people having the respect of a lot of people in the business really really good smart people and that's what i always did i always looked up to people that were a lot better than me i wanted to be better I never said, hey, you know what, if I'm good enough, I'll be okay. I always wanted to be the best at what I did. And I don't know if I was the best, but I certainly was fortunate to get my feet in at ESPN Radio and at Fox to be sort of a, I don't know what you would call me, a trendsetter. I was just a guy who was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. And I went in and, you know, working at ESPN that back then was not that easy. 
They would put you through a process where you would have to you'd sit down in the office with one of the executives, and they would ask you who the third line was for the Vancouver Canucks. Wow. I mean, that's how sports-centric it was back then. <laughs> so if you didn't know who the third line was for the Vancouver wow. Canucks in, in 1992, you weren't getting a job. Boy, that's unbelievable. You talked about WIP about 20 years ago, give give or take a few years. My roommate in college for a while was from Philadelphia, and we were in there playing the Sixers, and he said, you got to come to this event. And to this day, it's the best radio promotion I've ever been to, and you know what I'm talking about. I got up at 6 in the morning to go to the Wing Bowl. What a, what a freaking party that was in Philadelphia. That was unbelievable. Yeah, and that was one of those organic things. You know, a lot of things about radio nowadays, it's in a focus groups and people sitting around in offices with suits on trying to figure out what we're going to do now to make the audience and what can we sell now? Back then, it was just guys sitting around, Angelo Cataldi, Al Morgani, and I were doing the morning show at WIP from a hotel lobby wow. in Center City. Friday morning, like three people sitting there with a coffee, half paying attention to the show. And so we, we would come up with zany ideas like Al Morgani, brought in a dozen donuts one day and I said, you know, I can eat that whole dozen of glazed donuts. So that's how it started. And I ate a whole dozen of glazed donuts. And then the people started calling and we're talking sports. People were reacting to me eating an entire dozen of glazed donuts. And then we had people starting to call in big deal. I can eat, I can eat 15 hot dogs. Or one guy calls him. My dad won the Coney Island hot dog Nathan's contest. He'll come into that lobby and eat 50 hot dogs one Friday morning. And so that's how it started. So people started showing up at this hotel and, and we were doing like eating contests. And so the guy who ate 50 hot dogs almost had a heart attack and died. <laughs> so they put the kibosh on that and they said no more eating contests in the hotel lobby. So then what happened was people started calling in and talking about wings and things that they could eat long before the gluttony of all these contests were going on. The, 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 the Nathan's one has been around forever, mm-hmm. but all of these now eating competitions all over have become a big deal. So we finally had people starting to say that they could eat wings, more wings than anybody else. So then we, we went to an old sports bar in Philly to do our first wing bowl. And that's what we called it. We put a thousand people in there at six o'clock in the morning. And that's how wing bowl started. Fast forward each year, it got bigger and bigger. Finally went to the, finally went to the spectrum mm-hmm. and that was packed. And then finally to the Wells Fargo center. And that's how it became. But then fortunately, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which side you're on, uh, the local media started saying that this was sexist and this is how cancel culture started. <laughs> wow. It was, Oh my God, a bunch of fat guys eating wings and they have strippers in there jam- dancing around. This is sexist. This has to end. We can't allow that in Philadelphia. So it was finally pushed out, but the continued tradition continues because the strip clubs who used to open at 6 a.m. to have the people go in there for the pregame show and get liquored up. Men, women, couples, mm. everybody would go in there. They had, that was the biggest bar day of the year in Philly, yep. that Friday morning before the Super Bowl, to go in and eat wings or watch people eating wings and watch scantily clad women serve them wings on a hot plate. And they'd bring in celebrities, and it became a big, big deal in this town. But now it continues only in name only at the local strip clubs. They continue to do the celebration, but the actual eating competitions have come to an end. And it's a sad ending. It's sad. It's terrible. For all of us who like to watch fat guys eat wings <laughs> and scantily clad women dance around at 7 o'clock in the morning. It was great. I had a great, great time out there. All right. I, I say Bobby Clark, Dave Schultz, Moose DuPont, uh, I can go on and on. You talked about the Broad Street Bullies and being in Philly and covering them. What was that period of time like for the Philadelphia sports fan? How amazing was that? It was great. 
good because remember the Flyers came into the league in '68 with the expansion, and so most fans in Philly, unless you were a fan of like minor league hockey, Philly wasn't a wasn't a big hockey town. But the the Flyers caught on, and it didn't take them long to start getting traction. And then in 1970 and '71. You know, Fred Shiro comes in, Bobby Clark's there, and they start building this team, and they had the tough guys. And that, that era back then, as you know, it, it was all tough guys. The Boston Bruins had the big, bad Bruins and the Buffalo Sabres. And so it was a physical game, and obviously a city like Philly loves physical sports. And so that's what the Flyers became big. And then all of a sudden, here they are winning back-to-back Stanley Cups. And that first Flyers parade in, 19, in 1974 was massive. I mean, in a city that obviously is a very diverse city, it didn't matter what color you were, whether you knew where hockey, if the hockey puck was stuffed or inflated, everybody was celebrating because, this, you know, the 76ers had won in 67-68 with, to me, one of the greatest teams of all time, if not the best NBA team of all time on that squad with Wilt and the guys. But the Flyers really made the city feel good about itself with the, with the parade. And then when they beat the Russians on national TV back in the day on NBC, you know, they became sort of this, like, yeah, they're the good guys. They beat those nasty commies back in the Soviet Red Army days. So, <laughs> sure. flyers were riding high. People, everybody was patriotic back then. We wanted to beat the commies. Now we want to beat commies. I don't know what's going on nowadays, but those were good old days. And watching those guys and getting to know those guys. And many of those guys, one thing about hockey players, and I'm sure you'll know this, is they usually, they usually place their roots in the city where they played. So a lot of the former flyers are still living in the Philadelphia area. Mm. A couple of them, like Bob Clark, he was smart. He moved to Tampa and uh, is living down there in Florida where all the smart people go. <laughs> when you look back at your career, what was the best part or your favorite part? Wow. I mean, everyone, every time I had a job, you know, I, I have this reputation of a guy who can't hold a job. I mean, I was at ESPN for 10 years. I was at Fox and in Los Angeles for 11 years. And so this whole, I can't have a job. You know, the people say Stephen A. Smith couldn't hold a job. The people say John Madden, who worked at every football network, and was, you know, wooed by other ones to move along from CBS to ABC to NBC. You know, so to me, it's not that I got fired. You know, I just, I, I worked at ESPN for 10 years. I moved along and then I got hired by Fox. So I, I don't think that every single job that I've had, seriously, I've always enjoyed it. It's always something unique about it. When I moved to L.A. to, to start Fox, you know, I'd never lived in L.A. I'd been there many times. And so to be on a morning drive in Los Angeles, and know that there are a lot of people listening in that city who are producers who you know stumble out of bed in the morning after a nice bender from the night before <laughs> and turn on the radio and they listen to radio. And the people in L.A. who listen to radio are the producers who eventually have to make a decision about hiring somebody. And that's how the whole Madden video game thing happened. A producer at the EA Sports was listening. They liked what I sounded like. And they called me and said, hey, we're putting a new thing in the Madden video games, 05, 06, 07. We want you to be the radio voice of the Madden game. So what am I supposed to say? No. So I didn't have an agent knocking on doors. I wasn't trying to take 15 jobs. I wasn't looking to be a movie star. I just wanted to go out there and start a radio network, grow it and, and have fun and enjoy life. And that's what happened. So I, I started getting phone calls. I had George Carlin call into my show one day unannounced. He was listening. So the one thing about being on in LA and it was on nationally as well, but LA is, you know, where if you're not on in LA or New York, you know, you're not getting that kind of national attention. And since we were on morning drive in Los Angeles, Andrew Siciliano and I, from 5 to 9 a.m., a lot of people in L.A. wake up and they hear me, whether it's George Carlin or whether it's producers of Madden video games or even a movie role in a, in a movie back in the, in the 90s, Don't Say a Word, 
with Kirk with the Michael Douglas and company. I did a ra- I did a voiceover as a radio broadcaster, pretending I was doing a radio show on on Thanksgiving Day, and that that made the movie. And I still get residual checks for that. So L.A. was obviously a big deal. I didn't go out there to be a star, and I wasn't really a star, but I actually got more exposure in Los Angeles. And then you know I moved back to Philly eventually to be closer to my to my family and work here locally. So. Every, every job that I've had, whether it's been local, whether it's my first job, whether it's my last job, I've always felt that it was a special thing. And I was so grateful all these years later, five decades later, to be doing what I've done and uh, to continue to be healthy enough to do it. I look at your career and to me, I've always just said that is just a guy that absolutely loves sports. That's a huge sports fan that just loves talking sports on the radio. As a matter of fact, you when I when I was at ESPN Radio during those six or seven months, you were hosting the NFL show on Sundays on ESPN Radio, and me and Joe D. Ambrosio and a couple of other guys were in the newsroom. And Philadelphia, the Eagles were playing the Cowboys, and Aikman gets hurt. And all we hear, you are screaming from the booth live, down goes Aikman, down goes Aikman, down goes Aikman. You sh- uh, if you could have hey, seen us in the newsroom, we were just howling. We had John Clayton was in there. We, uh, we basically fell off our chairs, man. No, it was a lot of fun, you know, and because I grew up, you know, you grew up in New York, you're a Giants fan. Sure. You know, when you come out of the womb in Philadelphia, you have to be an Eagles fan. And then you become confused like some fans do, and they become Cowboys fans because the Cowboys were good in the days. But, you know, even though all of my vitriol for the Cowboys, you know, it was just radio shtick. You know, was, I, was, I, was I turning over desks and going crazy? No, but, and the best part is that Troy Aikman used to listen to the show. So when I actually first I met Troy Aikman, he came up to me and he said, you know what? You're my favorite guy on radio. I wow. love the way you do your job. I love the way you have fun. And Troy and I have become friends over the years. And every time I see him, he comes up to me and gives me a hug. So, you know, all that Michael Urban, another guy, all those cowboy guys that I used to goof on about on the radio, they all know what I was doing. So they knew it wasn't a personal. I wasn't trying to destroy them. I wasn't calling them names. It was just having fun as a fan on the air. And I think when you have fun as a fan on the air and, you, and people realize that you're doing your job and you're having fun, and a lot of this is just, you know, just radio, not stunts. It's just a real fan enjoying sports and doing what sports fans are supposed to do. Even though it's our job, we weren't really journalists. We were people having a good time. Mm-hmm. In, in a remember back then, this was an emerging, this was an emerging franchise. Sports talk radio. There were some stations here and there that did a couple of hours, and then the fan in New York. And then back in the '90s, that's when it started exploding. And that's when ESPN Radio and all these other major corporations started saying, you know what, sports is a big deal. ESPN bought 1,000 AM in Chicago so they can make it their station. So sports radio has become a staple now in every city in America. And even some of the cities that aren't what we call great sports towns have three and four sports stations on the air now. So obviously there's money to be made. There's a lot now, especially with the gambling component. I think sports radio is here to stay, whether people like it or not. It's here to stay. But you talk about having fun. You have to be so damn careful about everything you say now because we live in an ultra-sensitive, woke culture country. You and I know that very well. I, it, it, the industry's different now, Tony, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know this. I know this. And, and you know, I'll give the ESPN credit. Back in the day when I was there, they let us do things, and we didn't do anything controversial. You know, we weren't cursing or doing any of that stuff. We weren't even taking phone calls. So we can do some zany stuff, and they didn't have a problem with it. But you're right, absolutely. Once Disney purchased ESPN, and listen, I love Disney. I'm, I'm a big fan. I go to the parks. Robin and I go all the time. We love the culture of Disney. We love how everything's done right when you go to their places. 
everything's clean. They do it right. And so when, when, when Disney bought it, it became sanitized. And so these are big corporations who have people sitting in, in rooms whose job it is is to cover their own asses and make sure that nobody upsets the apple cart. And unfortunately now in spoken word radio where you can't script three, four, five-hour shows, you know, you're going to say something silly every once in a while as long as you know where the line is. And I've known where the line is. I mean, imagine how many words you and I have spoken over the public airwaves for decade after decade. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while you say something stupid. I don't mean racist. I don't mean anti-Semitic. I don't mean anything that's way over the line where you should be immediately fired. I mean even borderline stuff where you have people sitting and listening who are waiting for somebody to say something so they can jump on you and then try to destroy your life. That's the world we live in now. And these companies, even Sirius XM where I was working before the whole LeBron reading thing happened last year in the bubble, which ended my career, even even Sirius XM and Steve Cohen and my great friends for all those years bowed immediately to the cancel culture when some loser at Deadspin writes this ridiculous column about how I'm a racist. By the way, I said, I said I was joking around about NBA players, and I was specifically talking about LeBron, because you remember when we were watching the bubble and LeBron was always pictured reading a book, and he'd open the page and all the media was around him. And again, I don't care. LeBron can do whatever he wants. It's America. I don't care what he does. We were joking around, and there were pictures, like four or five different pictures. Every time LeBron was sitting and reading in the bubble, he was only on the first page of the books. So I was joking around about it, and I said, you know, LeBron probably can't even read the whole book, or something like that, something silly. And then, of course, I became a racist and, and condemned the entire NBA as guys who can't read, which is not a, even remotely close to what I said. But it doesn't matter what you say anymore. As long as you've got that one person who's out there retweeting their column, well, you, you, you read, if you read the thing, the, when the first sentence of somebody's column is radio, jackass, Tony Bruno, you know, so that's, sure. you know right from the get-go when the actual sentence, when the actual lead words are absolutely preposterous. And so you know that's an agenda, and now all I have to do is even suggest that you're racist, sure. and there's no way you can defend yourself no. over that. So that's the, part that, uh, that's the part I'm glad I'm away from. Because I think getting into radio right now and having a personality and trying to have fun it is, it is, is the hardest thing to do. Even stand-up comics can't do anything anymore, for God's sake. Nobody should no. be. If stand-up comics can't do off-color off stuff and push the envelope, how the hell can anybody do it on radio when you're working for major corporations that could just throw you out the door the next day without any questions? You know, Tony, I ended a 32-year career because I tweeted all lives matter, every single one, and for some reason, some deem that racist. And personally, I don't care if you call me a dick. I don't care if you call me an asshole. I don't care what you say about me, but don't ever call me a racist. There's nothing worse than that. And, and I know exactly what you're talking about because that stays with you forever, and it's just so wrong. Yeah, again, again, I'm not going to sit here. But one thing about the, the R word, and it's used all the time, is that it's one of those words, if somebody accuses you of being racist, there's no way you can defend yourself. So you have to prove that you're not because they can't prove that you are. Words do not make someone racist. And I think we, and you and I both know what, the, what racism is. The bare, racism is when you have the power to prevent someone of a different color from getting a job or you have the power to keep somebody from working with you or doing anything else to keep somebody down. 
I've never done that in my 50 years in radio. I've always mentored young people regardless of their race, color, religion, or anything. So I know I have that going for me, and the people who have known me and worked with me, they know who I am also. So a couple of dumb things on the radio are, are don't define my career, and that's why I put myself to sleep at night saying, you know what? I think I've done a great job. I've done a great job of representing myself, my family, and the people who hired me and paid me to do what I do. And that's all I know. I, I that's what that's how I go to sleep at night, mm. knowing that I know I've done the best I can, and think I've helped a lot of people along the way. Which is all you can do as somebody in the business who tries to help the next young generation coming up. With that said, though, is there a regret that you weren't able? to go out the way you wanted to, or maybe the way you had always envisioned that farewell. You know, the thing about radio, I mean, Kenny Mayne, great friend of mine, you know him from ESPN days. Yep. At least, like, I give ESPN credit. They ran him out the door, but they at least gave him one last sports center. And you know, in our business, most people who get fired, it's usually a Friday afternoon dump. Yep. I've always been fortunate. My last show at ESPN, I knew it was my last show. My last show at Fox Sports Radio, I talked about it and said it was my last show. So I've never been given the bums rush and the serious show that I was doing last year, you know, not everybody, nobody even knew I was on serious unless you had serious satellite radio. So I'm not knocking them. I, I've been on serious multiple times at different organizations, whether it's ESPN, Fox, you know, sporting news. So I love serious radio. I, I still pay for my subscription in my car. I love it. It's a great, great thing to have. So to me, I don't think I went out and crashed and burned. I mean, look at Dan Rather. Dan Rather was the greatest news anchor at, at, at CBS. He, he crashed and burned. Now here he is decades later, still out there doing his thing. So I don't think my career crashed and burned. I'm not, I'm not a guy who wants to work until I'm 80 years old. You know, as I said, I'm going to be 69. I'm going to move to Florida and I'm going to enjoy life every day. Sit out on my back porch, not because I'm an old guy, but because I have a back porch and I have a pool and I'll have a boat <laughs> right. and I'll be able to see the sunset every night. That's, that's what everybody wants to do. So some people want to work until their last day or die on the air. And that's fine. I don't tell people whether they, you know, Vin Scully, great people like that who have worked till the very last days of their lives. And Vin Scully's still out there. God bless those people. If they want to work until they die, more power to them. I thought I would retire earlier, to be honest with you. And, but I'm not because I still have fun doing this. I don't want to take a full-time job. So that's why we're doing the, the no filter opportunity right. came along. Yep. And I think for guys like you and me and, Eric Burns and Jeremy Roenick and all the people now involved with this no filter platform. I think that's the future. You work, your bosses know who you are. They let you do what you do. And they're not hanging over your shoulders telling you, by the way, don't talk about that. Don't talk about LeBron James. Don't talk about the NBA. We do whatever we want. That's the freedom. I think that people like you and me and these other guys, guys who put in great careers at what they do and have nothing to be ashamed of. Never hurt anybody never assaulted anybody, never went to jail for criminal activity. That's, to me, that's what it's all about. We have people who have jail records, people who have white beaters and rapists and murderers who get second chances. So I'm not worried about what I've done in my career as something heinous that, 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 that stamps loser on the top of my forehead after the end of what I thought is one of the most remarkable careers that I, can, I kind of would never have dreamt mm. that I would have done yep. what I've done in my life. And not because I, I had help, but I also had to have the drive to keep doing what I did when I was a young kid and was always perceived to be the young kid. So that's, it's all about be having thick skin. I've had thick skin. You've had thick skin. Yep. And, you know, you can look at guys like LeBron. He doesn't have thick skin, but he no. has a right to say what he, he does. He has a right to say everything he wants to say 
But when anybody dares criticize someone of his power, he doesn't like it. And it's not even about insulting him. Any kind of mild criticism is enough to set these guys off. And, and I remember the old days. You know, when guys, when people were yelling at athletes or screaming at them, and I'm not talking about racist stuff or that crap, just giving them the business. Well, you remember the guy in Chicago, the Bulls guy, was read the, the Jordan Rules courtside in Washington, actually. Yep. Remember that guy? Robin, Ro- Robin Fricker. Robin Ficker. Robin Ficker. That's yep. your abstract Ficker, I think yep. it was. Yep. This guy would stand up yep. in the front row in Washington and read the Jordan rules out loud to Michael Jordan. And Jordan would just flinch. He didn't care. He laughed. The guys today, the, the, the LeBrons and these guys, the thin-skinned guys. Oh, boy. How about Kevin Durant? These guys, you can't, you, you can't even criticize them in no. the media when, when it's your job to make observations about sports and athletes. Kevin Durant. How about Kevin Durant? Is there any, any, anyone more sensitive in pro sports than him? Seriously. No. And again, they could be thin-skinned. They could express their opinion. But guess what? The fans who pay the money and the people who watch them on TV, who react to them and support their products, they have a right to... To make opinion, that's what this. That's what we do. Yes. That's what sports radio. That's what opinion. That's what newspaper columns. That's what opinion pages are about. We keep them making money because we talk about them. Now, can they survive without us? Of course. But the bottom line is, if you if you're too thin skinned to play a sport where you need people to pay to go and watch you, pay to subscribe to a, a, a cable channel to watch you. For example, the Sixers game tonight. Sixers game two. It's not even on TV. It's it's on NBA TV. So if if you're in Philadelphia and you don't have NBA TV in your package, how do you watch the game? So that's to me is you you have to you have to you have to put yourself in the proper perspective. The NBA is a great league. I don't hate it, but I'm telling you, these guys think that the world can't exist without them. And that's where they're making a mistake. Well, I totally agree with you. I did a podcast last month. Uh, I spent 30 minutes talking about how hypocritical LeBron James is. And I used a lot of facts based on tweets and other things. And uh, I think if you're going to have 50 million followers on social media and you're going to be involved in social media and you're going to get involved in very important political and social issues, I think with that comes a, a responsibility. And I think LeBron lacks responsibility. And that's why I call him a hypocrite. I think the guy has done more damage to his sport than any player that I can remember in any generation. And I think it's going to be reflected in the upcoming NBA Finals ratings. I think it's going to be reflected when fans are allowed back in the arenas. And again, maybe I'll be proven wrong, but uh, I'm going to wait for those numbers. But I think he has done a lot of harm to his sport. I totally agree with you. And it's not race-based because, no. you know, I, most of my favorite players, I, I, have a, I have Dr. J pictures. Charles Barkley is one of my best friends. So it's not about it's race-related. It, it, it doesn't matter what your color is. If, you're, if, if, if I think, as a, as a guy who comments on sports, that you're a horse's ass or a loser, I'm going to say it. And people will come after me. That's fine. They can come after me because there's a lot of sick of fans, and I get it. Listen, I, I love watching athletes. I, I've, met, I've been fortunate. You and I have both been fortunate to meet a lot of guys. We know who the good guys are and the bad guys are. But I don't take personal. I don't have personal vendettas against athletes. I react like a regular fan who's watching the games. You had more up-close and personal uh, relationships because you were there courtside doing the broadcast. So you got to see these guys up-close and personal. And most of these guys are good dudes. I don't, it's not about I have to pick and choose which sport I'm going to find a demon or, or an enemy. LeBron's not my enemy. He doesn't even know I exist. <laughs> so I don't right. care about that. I just give opinions. And I agree. I think LeBron with the China stuff and not even commenting Terrible. on what's going on over in China, but, but, but commenting on what's going on in this country, that's hypocrisy. Yeah, there's a lot of problems in this country. But when you ignore 
slave slavery in China because you're just the same thing with John Cena who came out and had yep. to apologize for saying that Taiwan was a country because he's got a contract to make movies for China. When you have to bow down for the dollar, and by the way, these guys aren't exactly broke. When you don't have the integrity to say, you know what, screw your movies in China. I'm standing up for America. I have a right to say Taiwan is a country. Darren Warren, now with the Sixers, give him credit. He yep. didn't even say anything controversial, and he got excoriated by LeBron. The guy doesn't know anything about China Correct. other than the checks that come from the Nike factories. Correct. So that's the thing that bothers me. If you're... If you're educated and you have facts to back up a, a discussion or to draw a conclusion or an opinion, that's fine. But when you, you're talking out of your ass like LeBron does, and then the media fawns over this, that's the problem with media. They're too much fanboys now, and they're not, they're not objective analysts. If they love a player and they're told that this guy's got to be worshipped, they'll worship right along. And that's not the way sports works. I read this excerpt from a story that Mitch Album of the Detroit Free Press wrote last summer after Deshaun Jackson's anti-Semitic comments, and he said this, Silence is compliance. That's a popular sentence today. But you can't be selective with your noise, not against hate. And unfortunately, LeBron and so many others are so selective with their noise. And I agree. Uh, this sentence, though, again, I'm going to repeat it. But you can't be selective with your noise, not against hate. And when you have 50 million followers on social media and you're LeBron James, uh, he is unfortunately so selective with his noise against hate. And I think that's the biggest reason. But listen, I love what you had to say. I love talking to you, man. Your career to me is fascinating. And I really mean this. I mean, in the 90s, when you were on ESPN radio, and as you said, that was the biggest platform out there. And I grew up in New York and uh, Chris Russo and I grew up right around the corner from each other. So whenever I could, I always used to love listening to the fan. But for national radio, you were synonymous with ESPN Radio. You were ESPN Radio, and those were so great days. And I, I want to end this because that was a long time ago. But to this day, I'm still very good friends with a lot of people that I got to meet and work with back there, the John Claytons and Bob Valvano and Joe D'Ambrosio. Who are, who are some of the people that you've worked with in your career that to this day – you're, you're still unbelievably like, you know, they're on the top of your list that, that you still have those great friendships and memories, even though it was decades ago. Well, most of the ESPN, I mean, for example, John Clayton and I are good buds. I get to see them at Super Bowls every year. John is a great friend. We've known each other since the early 90s. Chris Mortensen, Chris Berman, Kenny Maine, who just moved on. I was fortunate to work with so many people. I mean, I, it would take me a half an hour to run down the list just to the ESPN of the people that I'm still friends with. After all those years, we're talking about 1992. So I've been fortunate, even at RKO, Charlie Steiner and Keith Olbermann. Keith Olbermann un unfollowed me on Twitter because I also tweeted All Lives Matter and he found that offensive. And again, if that's his problem, not mine, I still consider Keith a friend. I've known him for 40 years. You know, I don't talk politics with him. And so if I put All Lives Matter out there, I don't think I'm suggesting that no other life matters. All Lives Matter means All Lives Matter. It's not a shot at Black Lives Matter. And, you know, Keith is very into this stuff now. And that's good. I don't tell him what to think, and I never have. And we've been friends through thick and thin. We've both had problems in our lives and careers, and we were always there for one another. But when Keith unfollowed me this past summer wow. because I tweeted, all lives matter. Sad. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's not the way friends react. And I'll always be there for him. If something I worry about him, you know, and, and I'm still a friend of his. So if he doesn't want to be my friend anymore, there's nothing I can do about it. But I've had great relationships with pretty much, I don't, I can't think of one person that I've worked with that I said, I'd never talk to them again. And I have no respect for them. 
And that's how I that's how I live my life. So if people don't like me, they can come out and say it. But I know that I've not had one person that I've ever worked with who I had not had respect, admiration, and treated fairly and equally as anybody else I've ever worked with. Tony, I really appreciate it. Great catching up with you. Great reminiscing. And uh, again, thank you very much. Uh, it's been so much fun to know you over all these years. And I wish you the very best. Thank you, brother. You know I love you too, man. Thanks so much. Great to be on your show. Let's now move on to our Q&A brought to you by CrowdUltra. Just go to CrowdUltra.com, sign up, and maybe I will answer your question right here on my podcast. Phil wants to know, would expansion be beneficial for the MLB? No, I don't see it. I really don't. I think there are too many struggling franchises. I don't think expansion would be beneficial for MLB. Ronnie wants to know if I could reflect on the past year since you're firing. You know what, Ronnie? I think I'm going to do a podcast on this coming up very shortly, and I'll reflect on all of that. Very good question, and I appreciate you asking. Ricky wants to know, why does baseball seem to have more cheating than other sports? That's a great question. I think that in baseball, first of all, how do you define cheating? But in baseball, you know, we talked about uh, Gaylord Perry with the spitball and stealing signs and we know what happened with the Houston Astros uh, and the Red Sox and so yeah cheating is and has been a part of baseball but then you look at the NFL with Spygate or Deflategate or whatever you want to call it with New England and uh, some other instances of cheating it's a very good question but I would agree with you I think the nature of the game the nature of the sport in baseball maybe lends uh, to a little bit more cheating. Will wants to know if I think it was a good idea for the NBA to comment on LeBron and KP's protocol violations. I think it was a good idea because they were different circumstances and the league is trying, trying to show everyone that there is no preferential treatment for LeBron James. Now, I think we all know that's not accurate, but I think that's why they did that. Sam wants to know, how did your broadcasting style change over time? It's a great question. I don't know if your style changes that much over time, but I think the way you look at certain situations change. It's a great question. In other words, I would think early in my career, I was a lot more harsh on the officiating than I was in the last 15 years of my career. And I think part of that was going to New York, hanging out with the officials at their training camp, learning what they go through, learning a lot of different aspects of what it's like to be an NBA official. So that's a great question. I, I don't really think that my style changed that much. I think maybe the the way I perceived things changed. I think my understanding of the league changed. But I don't really think my style changed that much from when I first began uh, to when I did my last game. Was I better? Yes. With more reps, I think you become better in anything you do. So in that aspect, I think I was a much better broadcaster in my 32nd year than I was in my first year. But again, that's just based on reps. That's a very, very good question. Aaron wants to know, should the NCAA expand the football playoffs? I don't think so. I really don't. 
I know a lot of people do, but I'm I'm okay with uh, four teams. I really am. Bryce wants to know, can I think of another player that's received preferential treatment like LeBron? He's certainly right up there. I don't think there's any question about that. I, I would think the greats, I think, you know, Michael Jordan, I think he received what you would call preferential treatment. Kobe, I mean, I can go on and on. I don't, I don't think it's that out of line based on the game's very best players uh, of all time. Jesse wants to know, have I ever been to an NFL training camp. I've been to many NFL training camps. I've been to many NFL training camps. I covered the St. Louis Cardinals when Jim Hannafin was the coach uh, in Illinois. Uh, They used to have their training camp at Eastern Illinois. I covered the Colts training camp in Indianapolis. Uh, I've covered the 49ers training camp, the Raiders training camp. I'm trying to think who else. Uh, I've done the Bears training camp. Yeah, quite a few NFL training camps. I've always enjoyed that, too. You know, back back when I was covering all these training camps, you used to be able to eat with the teams, and uh, that was neat. I mean, it really was. It was, it, I, I, But I had a great experience covering uh, NFL training camps, and I did the Raiders preseason games on TV for five years, and I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, Derek wants to know, did I expect Trey Young – to be as good as he is. I did not. I mean, I, I think he's got a special talent. It's going to be interesting to see where his career uh, ends up and how good uh, he can be. All right, Tony wants to know, why are good players like Lou Williams or Jamal Crawford not starters? Same thing that Mono Ginobili didn't start. I mean, there are roles for players that best suit what they do and what the team needs. And, you know, when you look at Crawford and Williams, they were prolific scorers, guys to come off the bench and our instant offense, that energy, that spark plug, they do one thing very, very well. Again, it's just the way the game has always been, you know, with that sixth man. All right, let's move along. Am I surprised that Morant is scoring almost 50 in the playoffs already? I think he's a really special talent. I think Memphis is is very lucky that they have him as their point guard uh, of the future. Tim wants to know, why does Westbrook get into confrontations with fans? Well, he didn't get into any confrontation, you know, leaving the court uh, the other night against Philadelphia in game two. He didn't do anything to the fan. The fan was completely out of line. The fan uh, will probably never be at an NBA game again. And so I, I didn't see, you know, there's nothing that Russell Westbrook did. You can't say, you can't blame him for that. Justin wants to know my thoughts on Mickey Calloway's investigation. I don't know enough about the investigation to comment on it. I really don't. So I think I'm like everyone else. I'm just going to wait and see uh, how it all uh, comes out. Uh, Alan wants to know, what's the odds the new T-Wolves ownership moved the team? Well, I know Glenn Taylor came out with a lengthy statement and saying that's not going to happen. But there's a lot more to this story than meets the eye. Uh, The minority owners uh, are now contesting the sale. This thing's going to get very interesting. It's very complex and I, it's very difficult for me to answer it in a, in the quick time period uh, that we have. But I don't think they are going to move the franchise. Jeff wants to know, do I think TNT will have any of the basketball guys do hockey? Uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me, but they're very different sports. First of all, you have to know the game inside and out uh, to do hockey, the nuances and everything else. 
But, I mean, could could Kevin Harlan do hockey? Yes, of course he could. Could Ian Eagle do hockey? Yes, of course he could. I mean, there's, there's no question. Will it happen? I would say probably not. First of all, the sports play the same schedule. In other words, they both start in October and they both end in June, other than this past year. So I think for that reason alone, uh, it would make it uh, very, very difficult. All right, let's move on to a couple of more questions here on uh, Crowd Ultra. Really good questions, man. I really appreciate that. Zach wants to know, what can the Wizards do to beat the 76ers? Nothing, because the 76ers are a much, much better team. Jake wants to know, do the Celtics need a different coach? I don't think so. I mean, Brad Stevens, I think, is an excellent, excellent coach. Uh, Alex wants to know, does the NHL give out too many fines? I haven't really analyzed that enough, Alex, where you say too many. You know, again, I'd have to go back and look, and it's very difficult to, to answer that question, uh, yes or no. Duncan wants to know, is Jason Tatum an all-NBA player? He is, in my opinion. And then Andy asks, will you watch Lamar Odom box? He's boxing? Lamar Odom is boxing? Then I guess I just answered your question. Why would I watch Lamar Odom box? Like, why? Like somebody tied me to a chair and put a big screen TV in front of me and said the only way I would get up from the chair is to watch Odom box? Even then I may not do it. Why would I watch Lamar Odom box? And thank you very much. Our Crowd Ultra questions. Just go to CrowdUltra.com. It's time for Rant. 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 Today's Rant's brought to you by the Home Theater Company, audio, video, and home theater. Just go online, HomeTheaterCompany.com. I've used them since the mid-90s. Trust me on this, folks. They are absolutely awesome. Just go to HomeTheaterCompany.com. All right, so the other night, game two, Westbrook gets hurt, and as he's leaving the court, a fan in Philadelphia dumps his popcorn on him, and Westbrook got very upset, and rightfully so. And I don't know anyone that feels that the fan is right here. I don't know anyone that thought that that looked cool or that's a good idea. I don't know of anyone that said, gee, thank goodness that the fan did that to Russell Westbrook. And I think it's very obvious that that fan is going to suffer uh, punishment in addition to never coming back into the Wells Fargo Center uh, to watch the Sixers play. But that's not good enough for Mr. Judge and Jury, LeBron freaking James, who went out on Twitter and said, by the way, and in capital letters, we as the players want to see who threw that popcorn on Russ while he was leaving the game tonight with an injury. There's cameras all over arenas, so there's no excuse. Because if the shoe was on the other foot, I mean, what is the deal with LeBron James? Seriously, what the hell is wrong with him? How about shut up and get ready for the game against the Phoenix Suns? You know, we don't need you popping off on everything. Let the people in Philadelphia do their job, all right? I mean, the body is still freaking warm, and you're criticizing already because you want to see the fan that threw the popcorn on Russ. Let me ask you something. Why? Why is that so important to you? Why don't you let the people in Philadelphia handle it? And by I mean the people in Philadelphia, I'm talking about the people that run the 76ers and the Wells Fargo Center. Why don't you let them handle that? Why are you so damn worried? And why are you saying if the shoe was on the other foot, blah, blah, blah? Hashtag protect our players. 
Let me tell you something. Every arena in the United States and Canada, they do their best to protect you and the players. All right? I know because I've seen them firsthand because I travel and have been to every arena in the country. All right? There's protocol in place to protect you and your fellow colleagues, as it should be. You should be protected. You shouldn't have to put up with fans throwing stuff at you. No one condones that. Nobody thinks that's a good idea. But you know what? We don't want to hear you come out on social media and say there's cameras all over arenas, so there's no excuse. No excuse for what? What are you worried about? All right? The person in question was apprehended. The person in question is going to be punished. The person in question is going to face the consequences. Is that not good enough for you? What the hell is wrong with you? Seriously, what has gotten into you? Why is it that you got to interfere and stick your neck out on every single issue except for what I consider real important issues outside of what you are actually trying to accomplish with social justice, all right? Again, I hate to say this because I say it almost on every single podcast, and I'm going to keep saying it, all right? Mitch Album, silence is compliance. That's a popular sentence today, but you can't be selective with your noise, not against hate. LeBron, stop being so damn selective with your noise, not against hate, as Mitch Album says. Again, you can't be selective with your noise, not against hate. LeBron James, you need to memorize that, you need to read that every day, and you need to realize that you continue to make blunder after blunder after blunder on social media. What the hell are you trying to accomplish? Seriously, what are you trying to accomplish? There's no excuse because there's cameras all over arenas. What do you want the people of Philadelphia to do? What do you want the 76 to do? What do you want the workers at the arena to do? Do you want to take the gentleman and hang him from the rafters at center court? Is that what you want? What is it exactly that you want to see done that hasn't been done? Unbelievable. Really. Enough already with LeBron James. Enough already. Shut up and play the freaking game. God, it's driving me freaking crazy. And with that said, that's my rant for today. My thanks to Tony Bruno. What an amazing career that he's had. Truly an amazing sports talk show host. Have yourself a great holiday weekend. And don't forget to check out my video rants as well over on YouTube. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you don't like that, with Grant Napier. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.